America's got money problems, inflation, out-of-control debt and spending, and it's only getting worse. But there's hope. Solving America's money problems, one hour at a time. It's time for Good Money with Tho Bishop. Good morning. This is Good Money with the aforementioned Tho Bishop. I am the editorial manager for the Mises Institute. You can get more content like you'll find on this show at Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org. Looking at our front page this morning, we've got a lot of great content. Um, article from a uh, one of my, my favorite Mises.org writers, Lipton Matthews, who is a uh, Jamaican economist on uh, voting with, uh, with your feet, um, kind of dealing with some uh, uh, local migration topics. Uh, we've got an article from Daniel Lacalle, who's a great economist from Madrid, about why governments hate honest money, a frequent topic of this show. And um, an order, uh, article from one of our staff members, Connor O'Keefe, on how politics has infected everything in our society, especially the media. Um, those are the top three articles on our site today. A lot of great stuff underneath. Of course, one of our continuing topics here on Good Money is the consequences of a politicized economy, an economy driven by an increased impact from physical policy, monetary policy, the regulatory state, and all of its various branches. And there's no better an illustration of this politicized economy than the names that we give different uh, politically, political economic programs out there, right? You know, we can think about um, the Reaganomics of old. Uh, we can think about the, the way that the term Bidenomics is being thrown around now. And this is something that often um, administrations themselves like to embrace when they think good economic news will benefit them politically. Um, there was a lot of talk about Trumponomics uh, during kind of the pre-COVID era of that administration where we saw sort of the, the start of the impacts from tax cuts and regulatory relief, uh, boosting certain measures, uh, wage growth, which had really been stagnant in the previous administration, starting to, started to, to rise. Um, unfortunately, that was then coupled with... Uh, a reversal of an attempt to normalize monetary policy, uh, the, the Powell pivot of 2018 in the face of some Twitter pressure from the president at the time. And so now we have the Bidenomics label out there that has been promoted by uh, the press secretary of the administration, has been repeated by various talking heads, uh, favorable to the administration, and they are confused right now. They're confused because all of the all the official data points that we are told are indicators of a strong economy, whether it is the uh, the job numbers, which we've talked in the past, the way that those can be sort of manipulated on the margins. There, the job numbers look strong historically um, from a historical perspective. Um, 
Now, again, that doesn't take into account those not looking for work, and we've seen an increase in that margin. We can talk about the way that um, rehiring after all the disruptions from COVID played a role in that. But, hey, look, the official numbers look good. Um, oh, well, uh, uh, inflation is is on the decline. Well, inflation is still uh, 3%, well above the target rate of 2%. Um, we have not seen a reversal from the costs, right? So, you know, the, this is simply a 3% of increasing prices, we're, 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 you know, this is not, uh, uh, we, we have not uh, uh, removed all that price inflation that we are all seeing. And of course, if you're in Florida right now, driving around I, uh, I-4, um, driving past a, a gas station, you might notice that those prices are going up yet again. Um, we talked a couple weeks ago about the, the weakening dollar globally and the way that uh, energy prices, we should be expecting to see an increase that we're seeing right now. And so this is creating a dynamic in spite of all the official good news, all of the, the official talking points about how strong the economy is and a presidential administration that is peaking over to the next calendar, to a, an election season next year. The American people just aren't buying it. Uh, I have an article up here from CNN Politics, certainly by no means a enemy of the Biden administration. They note CNN poll, half of Americans think the economy is getting worse despite months of stronger economic news. And uh, within their polling, it shows that um, 51% of the country think the economy is still on downturn and getting worse. Um, the percentage that thinks the economy is strong is about 40%, which, you know, break it broken down by bipartisan measures there um you know you have the democrats for the most part kind of standing strong with their guys often as reflected in some of this economic polling no matter what the administration is if it's your team in charge then you know things don't look as bad as other people might see it to be um you know but those those independent voters those swing voters are not following along with the administration's talking points here and these these larger concerns about a uh, you know we we've been seeing headlines now for several weeks about well guess what all of these these doom and gloomers out there that are predicting recession predicting a correction um, you know often you know this is all kind of connected to the way that the Fed has been increasing rates as a way of dealing with the inflation problem which expectations right are. Yeah, that, 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 that those increased interest rates are going to bring about a, a, a correction, a recession, a, a cost. A, a, you know, there's going to be some businesses that can't afford the new interest rates. You're going to see changes in the job market, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, they've been claiming victory now for several months. You've, you read about you know, Paul Krug in the New York Times saying, hey, look, it turns out that you know we really are going to get this this uh, uh, soft landing that the policymakers have promised that they're capable of delivering. But again, Americans are not seeing this, and there's various economic indicators there that that doubt is warranted. Um, we have right now um, a, a, a very interesting credit event going on. Uh, the money supply, which takes into account not simply what the Fed is doing, but the way that banks are lending out money, um, the way that, that money is circulating throughout the economy. Um, 
we have now seen a, a decrease in the money supply um, for eight months now. That usually is a sign of a credit event to come. Um, and so the question is, who should we believe? Should, should we trust the experts or should we trust the gut feeling of the Americans out there trying to make a calculation? If, should we consider the look at the you know, have, have placed more weight in the uh, views of small business owners that are trying to actually make decisions and to decide how they're going to handle things in the future? Um, you know, should we take into account the extent to which workers who, you know, they, they might be employed, you know, there, there, there might not be an issue out there getting a job um, in terms of labor demand out there, but what about their affordability issues? Obviously in Florida, we've, we've got some specific issues with housing, insurance rates, and the like. Um, whereas in other states, you have massive decreases in housing costs, which has you know, a tremendous impact on the net worth of families, right? You know, you have people that have bought houses in other parts of the country that are now underwater because of the decreases in housing as a result of these increased interest rates and the way that that makes mortgages more and more unaffordable. We can think about the anxiety that younger Americans have. Um, we had a great presentation at Mises University a couple weeks ago by a German economist, Carl Friedrich Israel, that was breaking down the uh, wealth inequality measures and how you know, the amount of time that you have to work with uh, uh, income in order to get certain sort of wealth measures of late. So we're going to be talking about this more with Jonathan Newman of the Mises Institute on the other side of the break. We're going to break down these soft landing predictions. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll see you on the other side of this break here on Money Talk 1010. Welcome back to Good Money. I am your host, Tho Bishop, here on Money Talk 1010. This is a product of the Mises Institute, and the Mises Institute has a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If you want a physical magazine, feels great, great paper, a lot of great uh, good designs in here. Uh, the Austrian magazine might be just for you. Uh, our most recent episode or issue has some great, uh, great content in there. Uh, we've got uh, some articles by Alex Pollock, who is a monetary policy expert, top Fed watcher. He's got an article, uh, Will the Fed Ever Rel Relinquish Its New Powers? The Fed's uh, Cincinnati Problem, um, looking at all of the extraordinary measures the Fed has taken and kind of the, the difficulty in unraveling all of that. We've got a guide to good money, um, which is an interview with Brendan Brown. Um, who looks at uh, central bank monetary policy um, from around the world. A lot of great content. Again, you can get this magazine delivered to your doorstep every other month for free. Just visit Mises.org slash magazine. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash magazine and get your free copy of the Austrian magazine. A subscriber to the Austrian Magazine and someone whose work you'll sometimes see in it is our guest today, Jonathan Newman, who is a fellow with the Mises Institute. Jonathan, how are you doing today? Hi, though I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Always glad to uh, to have you on. Always enjoy our conversations. And Jonathan, um, the where we opened up the show is uh, again we we have you know always love the political branding of the economy. It's always interesting to see, you know, where politicians kind of put their ownership stake 
And right now, the, the Biden administration has firmly planted their flag in Bidenomics. Um, they're trying to uh, uh, lift their political sails on trying to convince the American public that, hey, look, it doesn't matter the anxiety that you're feeling. Look at all these official measurements. Um, everything is going great. We've got the best economy that you can possibly imagine. There's an, I've got an article pulled up here um, from MSNBC that has uh, you know, five reasons why you should be feeling great about the economy. Um, and yet again, Americans quite aren't buying the idea that the policymakers in charge know exactly what they're doing and that the soft landing that uh, has been promised by the Fed and others may not actually come into be. Um, you've talked about this recently, a, a recent episode of the Human Action Podcast with Bob Murphy, um, which I highly recommend anyone that enjoys this show to check out. Um, looking at some of the, the macroeconomic factors out there and kind of questioning the narrative of these wins. Um, so can you start from there? Um, you know, from your perspective as an economist, um, you know, should should we be uh, be, be celebrating uh, a, a victory right now for the inevitability of this soft landing that the Biden administration is, is counting on for electoral success next year? I would say not yet. It seems like uh, all of the pundits, all of the financial news media, the Fed itself, the Biden administration, they're all running victory laps because they think that they've achieved this soft landing. And by soft landing, what we mean is that the Fed has, has raised interest rates without causing a recession or a crisis. They've, they've increased the federal funds rate, which is their main policy uh, tool, uh, without causing a bunch of unemployment. So by their logic, since a recession hasn't started yet officially and they've raised interest rates, they're declaring victory. They think that they've achieved this nice, easy, soft landing. But of course, if you just do like a little bit of critical thinking, if you just look under the hood just a bit, you'll see that households are struggling with inflation You'll see that uh, bank balance sheets really aren't ready to, uh, to weather um, an extended period of high interest rates. You'll see that there are uh, <clears throat> layoffs in, in very important sectors across the economy. You'll see all of these sort of warning signs, all these uh, canaries in the coal mine that, uh, that give me the impression that all is not well. well we, haven't quite, uh, we haven't quite gotten the soft landing or maybe we shouldn't be declaring that we've gotten the soft landing yet because it seems like we've got to see what's going to happen later. And that's why on that uh, podcast that you referenced, Bob Murphy and I, we, we made the, a sort of a, a clarified prediction that uh, we'll have a recession by the end of 2024, if not sooner. And, and the reason why is because of all of the things that I mentioned before. Not only that, but we also had a yield curve inversion and every single yield curve inversion over the past few decades, or, or actually half of a century, has preceded a, uh, a recession. So if we don't have a recession, it would be quite a surprise to me, and it would be very, very um, rare for, for that sort of thing to happen. I think one of the, the most important things for listeners to understand is can the, the extent of the debt situation that is not simply an american problem it's, it's an international problem um you know as part again you know you subsidize something you get more of it right this is kind of a one of those basic 
uh, uh, pieces of economic wisdom that your average person seems to understand uh, a lot better than a uh, the government policymakers. Um, you know, but just running down, and I know some of the, the pressure points out there is um, you know some of the the bank's balance sheets that are, are are really showing some strain. A lot of it is because of delinquencies and commercial property loans, um, which we can think about all of the changes in terms of commercial real estate that we've seen. You know. You know, the most obvious example being you know, kind of the shifting of of uh, labor markets and the work from home stuff, and I, I think particularly within cities, you've got major issues with commercial real estate. Though I can talk to people here in you know a smaller town, and you know, I know the difficulty for getting uh, loans for commercial real estate right now because of concerns for the long term profitability are an issue. We've seen uh, and, and credit card debt levels are extremely high. Capital One. Um, has been raising concerns about uh, credit card delinquencies out there. Um, you know, there was a massive increase in terms of personal savings rates during COVID. Part of that, you know, if you can't go out and can't spend money, you're going to end up. Yeah, that, that's that's going to inevitably lead to to an element of of saving. But because of inflation and other financial issues, that has been going down. And I, I think that. You know, one of the the aspects that can make economics so difficult. You mentioned how uh, uh, you and Dr. Murphy, um, you know, are predicting a, a a recession. You know, by the end of 2024, there's a time element where you know bad economic conditions can it it, it takes a time. You know, there's there's an element there where you know it's, it's not like turning on and off a light switch. There's a time here, a time element for all these things to really start to factor in. Um, you know, we can think about all the ways in which, um, you know, dealing with, say, the back, the past housing bubble, all the issues that came out and kind of clearing some of all of that bad debt. Um, you have a, a article on uh, the Mises website on our Power and Market blog, a lot of, a lot of great stuff on there, uh, looking at all of the predictions in 2007 about the soft landing where you had Ben Bernanke out there saying, Oh, well, don't worry. Everything's, everything's good <laughs> and fine. You had uh, various, very you know, serious outlets saying that, Hey, look, you know, there's, there's nothing to see here. Everything's fine and dandy. Um, so can you talk about you know, if we, if we can use history as a guide, can you talk a little bit about how similar claims that we're seeing now in these victory, you know, these victory laps and like how some of these mirror kind of similar incidents that we saw in the previous financial a big financial event, um, the housing bubble, and the resulting financial crisis of 2008. Well, one thing is for sure, you cannot trust the Fed's predictions. They, they make all sorts of projections about the trajectory of uh, the federal funds rate, which is their own policy rate, about uh, inflation, about uh, GDP growth, and they are notoriously bad at making those predictions. And so, yeah, I uh, was seeing all of these soft landing headlines today, and I was wondering what sort of headlines were being written in 2007, just before the, the major crash in 2008. And when I did that, it, I didn't even have to do any cherry picking. It was, I, I, I did a Google search for soft landing and constrained the uh, time period for 2007. And I got headlines like this, International uh, Monetary Fund, soft landing ahead for U.S. economy. The New York Times says, Fed chairman projects soft landing for U.S. economy. That was in February of 2007. Reuters, U.S. economy on track for soft landing, according to the Dallas Fed. That was in September of 
when when all, and by that time everybody and their brother was was thinking, hey, something's funny. Something funny is going on in uh, the housing market, and we should probably be worried about what's going to happen. The Financial Times had a headline in February: "Fed sees soft landing for the economy." NBC News says, "Is the economy heading for a recession or not?" Question mark. And the below the headline, it says, "Still, some believe that while the odds favor a so-called soft landing, the risk of a recession is rising." So. Of course, all of these uh, news media outlets—they're—they're they're relying on some of their own people, but a lot of them are just reporting what the Fed says. And so, like I said, one thing that we cannot do is we cannot trust what the Fed says. So, if if Jerome Powell comes out and says, "I think, I, I think that the uh, likelihood of a recession is very low," that's that's pretty meaningless. And the and the reason should be obvious. It's it's because if if he is telegraphing a recession is ahead then it, it would almost be like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So everybody would run and panic, and, and we would have the crisis that he, he predicted. So the Fed is always going to predict that they are the wise stewards of these, these, these disastrous, these uh, very powerful uh, monetary policy tools. They're always going to say that they've got things under control, that they're using uh, data when they're trying to decide on monetary policy, and that anything that they do to, to change interest rates, it's for our, our long-run health. It's for, it's for our own good. And, and, of course, all of their broadcasting that they do and, and announcements that they do is, is just to try to, to encourage confidence in, in what the Fed is doing. But as we can see from these headlines from 2007, there's really no reason why we should trust them because right around the corner was one of the biggest – uh, crises that the U.S. has ever seen, and yet here in 2007 they were saying, "Hey, we've achieved a soft landing," or I, "We're about to achieve a soft landing." When of course that didn't happen. And I think that we need to we need to think about the sorts of headlines that we're seeing today, and also the the canaries in the coal mine that I mentioned before, and have some of the same sorts of worries. Yeah, I always like to to emphasize with people who may not necessarily grasp the the details of how the Fed operates and you know open market operations and you know uh, federal funds rate uh, targets and things like that. The number one policy tool the Fed has is what they call a, a communication forward guidance. It's 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 essentially gaslighting. The number one tool the Federal Reserve has is using the power of their bully pulpit to convince people that everything is fine. Um, because you know that that confidence is is very important in their view on trying to prevent bad things from happening. Once that confidence goes, then things get really really bad very very quickly. And so again, lying is a uh, or you know, rationalizing away economic uh, concerns. Be a little bit more charitable there. Um, you know, is the number one policy tool the Fed. And, and Jonathan, for for our listeners, you know, I, I think this kind of goes to a very important meta conversation about the way that economics is viewed, because obviously we're, we are talking here about um, patterns, right? You know, we're, we're talking about how, um, you know, the, the way that history tends to rhyme in the way that some of these processes go. Um, you know, I, I think that it has become increasingly popular to kind of dismiss um, economics as a rigorous discipline, you have critics on both the left and right that kind of subscribe to sort of an economic nihilism, 
um, you know, questioning any of the, the value that economists provide. They can, you know, they kind of see it as sort of serving as a propaganda wing, either for for big business on the side of the left or propagandists for government on the side of the the right. Which, again, when it comes to certain, you know, the Fed and others, that's that's not necessarily an unreasonable view there. Um, but what what is it that gives economists like yourself um, a a framework to look at these business cycle events, right? You know, what, what is the tip-off here? What are the, the cause and effect consequences here that, you know, these these warning signs within credit markets, you know, the the the, the issue with the, the inverse yield curve, um, you know, can you explain to our listeners, you know, what is the, the underlying framework that gives someone like you or, or, or Bob Murphy a lens to recognize that, hey, look, you know, there, there is, there, there's, there's, a, there's a, an economic event here that the Fed is lying about. The framework that we use is uh, Austrian economics in general. But when we're talking about the macroeconomy and the effects of monetary policy and the effects of what banks are doing, we're uh, specifically applying Austrian business cycle theory. And uh, it's really not a controversial idea the, the, the main idea behind Austrian business cycle theory is simply that interest rates matter, that money printing has real effects. And the specific sorts of effects that we, we would anticipate when interest rates are pushed below what they would have been on the free market uh, is that we would see entrepreneurs taking more risks. They would start longer lines of production. They would they would make they would start all these new businesses uh, because credit is easy, cheaper to borrow, and we would also expect to see consumers borrowing more because interest rates are down. And this, of course, one of the effects of monetary inflation is price inflation. So people's incomes go up, prices are going up, firm values go up. It the the effect of expansionary monetary policy is almost like a a a stimulant, a, a drug for the economy that makes it look like everything is is humming and, and buzzing with excitement and, and starting all sorts of new things. But of course, that sort of thing can't last forever. If you're if you're just playing with the numbers, if you're just increasing the amount of green slips of paper in the economy, you're not necessarily creating more productivity. You're not you're not setting the economy up for sustainable economic growth which, as we know, only comes from real savings and, and real productivity. So what you actually do is you just you set all of these new businesses up for failure. All the entrepreneurs who took the easy money and started new businesses and, and that were riskier and, and will take longer, there's not going to be enough real capital goods around for them to finish all of those projects. And so inevitably, we're going to have a bust. Inevitably, all of these projects that are started in, in the 2007 case, 2008 case, it was all of the housing and, and neighborhood projects that were started in the early 2000s. So all of those things have to be liquidated and people have to be laid off as we correct the mistakes of the past. So that's, that's Austrian business cycle theory in a nutshell. And it really is a, uh, an illuminating framework for looking at the economy around us today. Well, we will continue our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Newman, a fellow of the Mises Institute. On the other side of the break, you are listening to Good Money here on Money Talk 1010. See you on the other side. Welcome back to Good Money. On this Thursday morning, I am your host, 
Bo Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute. You can find more content like this at MISES.org. And we've got a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If you are interested in um, improving your own understanding of, of economic theory, if you want to understand inflation in the Fed better, if you've got a student that is in high school or in college and you want to give them a boost in their economic literacy, um, I think it's one of the best frameworks of kind of being able to to see through a lot of the garbage you get from the news cycle or influencers on TikTok. Uh, this is a great deal for you. We've got two books, two books that you can get for just $5. One of them is How to Think About the Economy by Dr. Per Bylan, an economics professor at Oklahoma State University. It's a great primer into proper economic thinking. And we also have a classic, What Has Government Done to Our Money by Murray N. Rothbard, one of my favorite books to recommend. It's a short read, explains the history of money as an economic good. It goes into the history of money and banking in the United States. Very easy read. Both of these are great for beginners, but also have tremendous value for those that, um, you know, have some you know that that are, are you read uh, economic news, enjoy talk uh, 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 you know, money talk ten ten and the like. You can get both these books for five dollars at mises.org slash good. Use promo code good money at checkout and shipping and handling is included. So two books, five dollars delivered direct, direct to you. Mises.org slash good. Someone knows how to think about the economy is our guest today, Dr. Jonathan Newman, fellow with the Mises Institute. And uh, Jonathan, you know, we, we talked on the other side of the break about some of the reasons to be skeptical of all of the uh, victory laps going on there with certain elements of the economic punditry class about a, a soft landing all the, the positive spin the administration has tried to place on Bidenomics and the strengthening of the U.S. economy. Um, if we look abroad, we see less rose-tinted glasses, um, rising concerns with Europe right now, um, recessions breaking out in other parts of the country, the kind of similar sort of dynamics here. And I, I do not think it's a coincidence that in this era of global economic uncertainty, we are seeing the rise of interest in new tools by the policy class. And I think most listeners now are familiar with the concept of central bank digital currencies. Um, This is something that we've already seen rolled out in China. We've seen progress made on this in Europe. We see other countries adopting it. We see the Federal Reserve talking about it. Um, you have an article up on the Mises Wire, CBDCs, the ultimate tool of financial intrusion. And can you break down from your own perspective, first and foremost, you know, what are the arguments being used right now to justify central bank digital currencies? And how should we look at this as a, um, you know, from, from, from a consumer perspective, from, from, you know, an average American perspective, what should our view be on these as a, uh, as a, as a potential new tool in the Fed's arsenal? Our, our view should be that uh, a central bank digital currency 
represents the biggest threat to our own privacy and to our own uh, really overall freedom. Uh, and the reason why is because of, of the sheer amount of power that it gives the central bank to, to influence uh, everybody's transactions, every, the way everybody saves, the way everybody uses money. And you asked what sort of uh, things are they saying? Um, why, are, why are they pushing for central bank digital currency? And one of the terms that I've seen come up a lot in these discussions, uh, both with the, like at the World Economic Forum and also with, with the Fed publications about a central bank digital currency, is they're using this term financial inclusion. The, the idea that uh, there are a lot of people who are not using banks for, for various reasons. They, either they don't have a bank around or they've, they've decided not to use a bank. And so they're, they're using this term as, as a part of their push for a central bank digital currency, thinking that the central bank digital currency will, will, will bring in some of those people, the people who, have, who are unbanked, uh, they'll, they'll decide to be a part of the financial system at large. And so just for example, in, in one of the Fed's uh, main CBDC papers, they say promoting financial inclusion, particularly for economically vulnerable households and communities, is a high priority for the Federal Reserve. A CBDC could reduce common barriers to financial inclusion. And so in the article that you mentioned, I just sort of took that to task. I, 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 I asked the question, okay, why are these people deciding not to be a part of a bank? What, what reasons do they have? What, what's motivating them to, not, to, to be unbanked? And of course, there's uh, plenty of surveys that ask people why they don't use banks or why they use banks. And of the people who decide to not use banks, they, they cite all sorts of uh, issues with privacy and trust and fees. These are the, the very significant factors that they're thinking about when they're deciding to, to use a bank. And my question is, what does a CBDC do to solve those problems for those people? If you're, if you're going to say that a central bank digital currency is going to bring about this greater financial inclusion, then it needs to offer something to these people who are deciding not to use banks for reasons like privacy and trust in the banking system and the fees. And I just walk through how a CBDC doesn't address any of those and in fact is a, is a complete violation of those, of those ideas. A CBDC gives the central bank complete control over, over your transactions and they can, they can snoop in and see the sorts of things that you're buying. So privacy is gone. If a, if a central bank is in charge of, of the way we use day-to-day uh, -day currency, then there's, there's very little trust uh, that can exist. And one other thing that some people are talking about, but, but not a lot, is, is this idea that the central bank would be able to impose a negative interest rate. So especially in a recession, in a crisis, when the Fed wants to uh, boost spending, when they want consumption spending and investment spending to go up, because they, they see spending goes down in recession, and so the obvious solution is for spending to go back up. What they, what they want to do is, is encourage everybody to spend more. And what could be a greater encouragement to spend more than the threat of taking some of your cash at the end of some period, like a week or a month? And so a central bank digital currency would give the central bank that ability to impose a negative interest rate and encourage people to, to, to spend all of their money 
so that it's not taxed away in the form of a, of a negative interest rate. So for those reasons, I don't think a central bank digital currency uh, really does have the intention of, of financial inclusion. Uh, I, I come to the conclusion that this is just this is just uh, political games. This is just word games, really, uh, to try to get people on board with the central bank digital currency. I always love this uh, this bait and switch dynamic that policymakers use, where they kind of justify their grand ambitions with this very uh, uh, patronizing sort of logic, right? You know, it's like, oh, well, these. These these poor unbanked people they're they're obviously making a um, you know bad decisions for themselves and, and so so therefore because they are making decisions that policymakers do not agree with um, it's some sort of irrationality or it's some sort of you know they're they're victims in some way and so therefore we need to have these new policy tools jump in to save these victims who, again, as you point out, their biggest concern is the dependability of the very people trying to act in their own interest. And this has come up in, in a variety of different sort of, of economic um, issues. You know, we can talk about uh, payday lending. Um, we can talk about a variety of these things, which I'm, I'm not saying are, are appropriate for, for everyone. I'm not even encouraging, you know, I'm not even trying to, 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 to say that those that, you know, use payday lenders are necessarily, you know, making the, the right idea, but it is their decision. It is, um, you know, they, they are deciding that they would rather not engage with the traditional banking system. And given the way that we've seen um, the traditional financial institutions operate in the past and seeing the degree that it is often those most vulnerable that pay the biggest price for the negative consequences of decisions. It's, it's, it's not a, not a rational move. And so for them to, to use that as a cover to justify in this massive expansion, of their power, um, you know, is, is, uh, it's truly a kind of a perverse dynamic out there, but something that they, they keep getting away with. You're right. And one thing that I didn't mention before is, is the way that, these these people they talk out of both sides of their mouth. So they'll they'll say all these nice things about financial inclusion and uh, and nice sounding things like that. Protecting consumer privacy is critical. All, all of that sort of stuff. But then out of the other side, they'll they will talk in almost with uh, with a bit of pride or with a bit of uh, um, almost like they're they're salivating, ready to to take over this new control. Uh, they they talk about how a central bank digital currency would offer them complete control over people's transactions. And uh, there was one particular quote that made the rounds on uh, social media not too long ago, and, and this was at a World Economic Forum event. And the speaker said, and one final note that I'll make is that if you think about the benefits of digital money, there are huge potential gains. It's not just about digital forms of physical currency. You can have programmability, units of central bank currency with expiry dates. You could have, as I argue, a potentially better, or some people might say darker world, where the government decides that units of central bank digital currency can be used to purchase some things but not other things that it deems less desirable. And so they're not even, they're not even keeping it a secret. They're not, uh, they're not really... Uh, um, trying to hide the fact that that they're ready to take control of everybody's transactions and take away everybody's liberty, and that's why I come to the conclusion 
uh, in my article that you referenced that uh, programmable money means pro- programmable citizens. This is an, an, uh, the, the intent of the state is to just take control. Yeah, and it's uh, uh, the, 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 the underlying urge here, again, you know, it's particularly, it kind of goes to what we were talking about the other side of the break, is that, uh, you know, the Fed's framework of wanting to, to, to juice spending and all sorts of stuff to kind of keep things going. I mean, this, this, is, this is the underlying goal of, of it all. The, the, the impoverishment of the people um, is, is an underlying goal of all of this. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for joining us. And you can find his articles on the Mises Wire at MISES.org. Welcome back to the final segment of Good Money on this Thursday morning. I am your host, Tho Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute. And if you're interested in more content like this, and I highly encourage you checking out Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. If you look at the bottom of the page, we've also got a a great, um, uh, you can subscribe to our daily email. You'll get a great economic commentary delivered to your email every week, or every every day, if you want to. Fewer emails. We also have a uh, weekend review uh, email option there. We've got a, t- a tremendous amount of, of great audio content, um, various podcast options. Um, our articles are turned into uh, audio Mises wires. So you can, if you prefer listening to your economic content, you can get our commentary in podcast form as well. And you can find us on various, whatever podcast platform you prefer. If you look up uh, Mises, and there you'll find a variety of podcast feeds, uh, again, new content. And also we have a great treasure trove of past lectures, um, uh, conferences dealing with specific issues and the like. And you can get lost with uh, browsing through the audio archives of Mises.org. And then you can get in the, the ebook section with a ton of free uh book content if, uh, if, if you're someone who really likes to dive down. I've uh, got a lot of great free content for you at Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. Um, to follow up on the previous conversation we had about digital currencies, um, I want to highlight a little bit of the history of these conversations about negative interest rates, because I think the history here um, is valuable on understanding how some of these ideas change over time. You know, they go from being, you know, a New York Times opinion post in 2009 and then become viable financial tools and instruments that central banks are implementing in the real world. Um, And his article on CBDCs, Dr. Newman highlights one uh, particularly um, outlandish idea to help, again, I think to try to drive home the absurdity of this in practice. After the 2008 crisis, um, there was a lot of conversation about the need to reach a, um, uh, to go, go, go deeper than the lower, than a, a zero interest rate. So again, remember interest rates around the world, um, including the U.S., kind of went to zero or near to zero. And there were concerns out there. Once you have interest rates down that low, right? You know, you, there's no traditional policy tools to kind of further push credit expansion to further encourage 
bank loans to, to further kind of spur this sort of activity that the Fed was so desperate for. And that's where this idea of negative interest rates, which is a punishment for saving, it's a, it's a, it's a particularly sinister form of taxation for savers and the like. One idea uh, that was mentioned by Greg Manicu, who was a, um, or I mean, still is, you, you, you never, uh, it, it's, it's very difficult to lose that stature once you obtain it. Um, he was a Harvard economics professor, uh, economic advisor for the Bush administration, uh, was considered to be a possible alternative to Ben Bernanke um, when he became uh, Federal Reserve chair during that administration. Um, but he had an idea that a student proposed that uh, he wrote about in the New York Times about um, how do we deal with this cash problem with negative interest rates. And the idea was like, oh, we can uh, simply remove the legal tender status of all currency with a serial number ending in a randomly selected digit. The idea being that if you were carrying dollar bills with you and you have the threat of one of those nice dollar bills no longer having value, that creates an incentive. The incentive is to put that money in the bank where it is then controlled in the digital banking system, and in which case the imposition of neg negative interest rates, which you can't do with physical cash, this solves this problem. Now, if that sounds sinister, that's because it is, right? I mean, that'd be blatant threat theft, and particularly targeting, targeting um, as Dr. Newman mentioned, the most vulnerable among us, these unbanked people that the Fed claims that they are trying to save, that they're trying to, to help with these programs, those are exactly the sort of people who would be impoverished by this idea. Another idea out there uh, was from a prominent uh, economist who was a professor at Carnegie Mellon, Marvin Goodfriend, who was actually a Federal Reserve nominee during the Trump administration. Uh, he wrote, in depth about the need for negative interest rates and abolishing cash from society as a way of achieving negative interest rate. His idea was to decouple the value of banknotes. So you have a crisp $100 bill in your wallet. If you deposit that $100 bill into the bank, it uh, is now worth $90. <laughs> Right, or $99, right? These are the sort of schemes that these economic policymakers, these very serious people, have been considering. So when you hear about central bank digital currencies, when you hear about these sort of things, just understand theft is the underlying aim for all of it. This has been Good, good Money This Morning. Tune in next Thursday for more of this. And for more content like this, you can find it at Mises.org. See you next week. Mises.